Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the Center's director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been a part of for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of Gente and Health. In fact, on Thursday, March 31st, we held a webinar. That was a conversation around the findings in the paper titled Latina Women in the U.S. Physician Workforce, colon, Challenges in the Pursuit of Health Equity. A recent article by UCLA's own Dr. Yowali Anaya Balderas Medina published in Academic Medicine. The research found that Latina women comprise just 2.4% of the country's total physician population. Join us in the discussion that focuses on why the Latina physician workforce shortage could present a challenge for health equity and also on solutions to address the root causes of the underrepresentation of Latinas and other folks who are also underrepresented in medicine. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm David Hayes Bautista, distinguished professor of medicine and director of the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator and guest for tonight, Dr. Yowali Anaya, who is an assistant clinical professor in the UCLA Department of Family Medicine, and also a member of the core faculty within the UCLA Family Medicine Residency. She wears a number of hats, for example, as a primary care physician for the diverse patient population at both UCLA and at county clinics. She also teaches residents and medical students, and her research interests are always top of mind as she seeks health equity for minoritized patients and the application of research to policy. And in this role, she is also a research scholar with the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture, that's pronounced CESLAC. And with that, I'd like to time, turn the time over to Dr. Yuwali Anaya. Dr. Anaya, it's all yours. Thank you, Dr. Hayes Bautista. It's been an immense pleasure to work on this research with you. Thank you for hosting us today as well. I'm gonna share my screen here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I am delighted to be with you all today. Um, so why are we having this webinar? Why do Latina physicians matter? Why did we pursue this study in the first place? For the team, uh, uh, for our team, the physician workforce matters because of the implications for health equity. So starting with the most commonly cited, the most seemingly straightforward layer, the shortage of Latinx physicians compromises the Latino population's access to language and culturally concordant care. But what does that actually mean? I wanna take it one layer deeper. When I say culturally concordant, I more precisely mean structurally concordant. Structurally concordant. There's a concept in academics called structural competency. Structural competency takes us a step beyond social determinants of health and health disparities curricula. It focuses our lens on the structures, meaning the policies, the economic systems, the social hierarchies that are the structural determinants of health. So representation of Latinx physicians is about more than understanding what Latinos eat or what their traditions are. It's about the lived experience of the structures and how these structures contribute to the social determinants of health 
and health disparities because those structures are where the money is at figuratively though I guess literally is also as well but that's why it matters for health equity because we need folks who can contribute their lived experience to vision to strategy to institutions to challenges to clinical encounters folks who can bring their lived experience of those structural determinants Physicians who have lived through racism, immigration, poverty, sexism, can bring that lived experience, that structural concordance to their approach. Data is important to inform and identify areas of progress and lack of progress. And our study was the first to specifically explore the representation and demographics of Latina physicians. In a publication from the Women's Physicians Health Study in 2000, Hispanic women made up about 5% of that studied population in 1993. Our study thus aimed to examine the current level of representation and the demographic characteristics of the Latina physician population in the United States, including age, language use, and nativity. So to tell you just a little bit about our methods and our study, we based our analyses on the US Census Bureau's American Community Survey, the ACS, and to ensure robust results and balance out year-to-year -year variation, we use the most recent five-year estimates. These capture annual data from 2014 to 2018 into a single larger data set. Um, while some prefer the use of one over the other, we do use the terms Hispanic and Latino interchangeably in our study in accordance with the US Census Bureau. Okay, so for comparison, what does the composition of our country's population demographics look like? Non-Hispanic white individuals make up about 61% of the total population and Latinos make up about 18% of the general population. In states like New Mexico, Texas, and our own California, Latinos make up a greater percentage of the population. Here in California, Latinos make up about 39% of the population. So now that we know what the general population looks like, we can look at the physician population specifically. Non-Hispanic white physicians make up over 65% of physicians in the United States, which as you remember from that last, last slide, this ends up being slightly higher than their proportion in the general US population. Uh, Hispanic physicians make up 6.3% uh, of the physician population. And then when we look at Latina specifically, we can see that they make up only 2.4% of the physician population, 2%. And so again, thinking back to that last slide, this is within that context of Latinos making up about 18% of the general US population. Latinas are the most underrepresented among the studied groups in our analysis. So thinking about what implications this brings for our patients and their healthcare equity. Spanish is the language spoken most frequently in the United States after English, yet Spanish speaking physicians are scarce. And studies show, and anecdotally, right, that disparities arise when providers do not speak the same language as their patients. Speaking only English at home is a norm among non-Hispanic white physicians and Latinx physicians are far more likely to also speak Spanish at home. Um, in fact, we found that Latina physicians are 35 times more likely to speak Spanish than non-Hispanic white physicians. We also looked at age trends, which revealed that uh, female physicians tend to be younger with Latinas being the youngest overall. 
So if I can draw your attention first here to the curve highlighted by this green arrow, you can see the general trend of this curve. Almost half of Latina physicians are under 40, and the Latina physician population has a median age of 40. Few Latina physicians are older than 65. In comparison, we can look um, at the curve here with the yellow arrow. So now you're looking at the curve um, uh, that contrasts and is the age distribution among non-Hispanic uh, white male physicians, uh, which peaks at 60 to age of 60 to 64. Non-Hispanic white physician um, uh, males have a median age of uh, 53. And this is where it gets even more interesting. Compared with the general US Hispanic population, a higher proportion of Hispanic female physicians are immigrants. So while immigrants make up 34% of the general population, immigrant Latinas make up 40% of the Latina physician population. We can't make any assumptions here about where these Latina physicians received their medical education. Uh, the ACS records don't contain information on medical schools attended by folks. So one question that this data raises is the question of what proportion of Latinas in this foreign born category are US medical grads and what proportion are international medical grads, IMGs. And another question entirely, Knowing that Latinos have been present in this country since before the U.S.'s birth as a nation, why is it that foreign-born Latinas make up a greater pr proportion in this disproportionately undersized Latina physician population in compared to that general Latinx population? For me, these point, uh, this points to the structural forces, those factors that we discussed earlier in the session and how they are creating educational opportunity inequities that are influencing US-born Latinas' educational success and advancement to medical school. My Latina IMGs that I've trained in our own residency program are fantastic and they're valuable. There is no question there. Rather, the question here is to what opportunities are there for the structures that our US-born children are developing under? And finally, Latina physicians are half as likely to be non-citizens and twice as likely to be uh, naturalized when compared with the general U.S. Hispanic population. So just more interesting demographics about the Latina physician population. And if you're a nerd like me, more questions to be answered. So some takeaways from our study. Latina physicians in the United States are young. They're likely to speak Spanish and very underrepresented, even more underrepresented than they were in the past, and many are immigrants. Although generally women have been have made gains in representation from the time period before the passage of Title IX, we can see that inequities still hinder women's representation and are worse for minority women. And this is also the case for their advancement in their career trajectory based on data by others. So there's value in representation and advancement that we are missing out on, not necessarily endorsing any company here, but this concept of recruitment, retention, advancement of female leads. What are we missing out on when Latina and likely other women of color make up such a small sliver of our physician community? We touch on some examples in our paper. We'll touch on some examples in our discussion today. 
but the implications, right, for patient populations, for biomedical research and academic medicine. So circling back to the opportunities that lie within what our data reveals, our findings show a pressing need to invest in the recruitment, the advancement, the support of Latinas in medicine, because without them, how can we be sure that things are not being lost in translation, for example, when, uh, when our limited English proficiency patients show up in clinic and the available docs in clinic that day don't speak Spanish? And what might they not feel comfortable sharing uh, that impairs our ability to get to the bottom of a symptom and only makes it out in what feels like desperation when a Latina Spanish speaking physician finally walks in the room. As one of this 2.4%, I can attest to that water faucet that opens, sometimes a fire hose when the doctora walks in the room. What feels like fear of who knows when I'll have this chance again to have somebody that I can tell this to. So there can't just be one of us. 2.4% can't be split between all of our clinics and all of our medical students, medical schools, and all of our operating rooms and all of our boardrooms. We can't have it be the case that even here in LA where almost 49% of the population is Latino, I still have 30 year medical students that say, you're the first Latina faculty I've met. Representation and advancement matters because we need folks to bring the perspective, the voice, the lived experience of minoritized communities to the exam room, to the boardroom and everywhere in between to help us create a vision for policies, for institutions, for research from their lived experience of those structural determinants, that structural concordance where discrimination, marginalization, poverty, they're not concepts, but rather concrete experiences through which folks can lead and inspire and empower, create opportunity so that together we can advance health and healthcare. And with that, let's turn to our conversation and discussion with Dr. Byington. I don't know about you, but that's why I came to today's webinar. So let's dive into our conversation here. Dr. Byington is the Executive Vice President and Head of University of California Health and a Professor of Pediatrics at UCSF. In her role, Dr. Byington leads the country's largest public academic healthcare system. Trained as a pediatrician specializing in the treatment of infectious diseases, Dr. Byington is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Byington has had a distinguished career in academic medicine. She has had continuous grant support totaling approximately 80 million since 1998. As a Mexican-American woman in academic medicine, she has worked throughout her career to end health disparities and increase health equity. In her administrative roles, she has developed and supported faculty mentoring programs and policies and processes for faculty diversity, salary equity, and parental leave. Dr. Byington has created pipeline programs for underrepresented students uh, that are interested in health professions, has held training grants that support research and career development experiences for American Indian undergraduates, and has mentored over uh, than a, more than 100 students, trainees, and faculty members, the majority of whom are underrepresented in academics or medicine. We are so excited to welcome you, Dr. Byington. Dr. Byington, can you tell us a little bit about your own story? What has your lived experience been as a Latina physician? Thank you so much, Dr. Anaya. It is my honor to be here today, and um, I am one of 
the very proud 2% that you talk about in your, in your paper. And I think um, I'm older than the median physician that, uh, that you talked about. And so that has left me with a somewhat lonely experience in academic medicine, um, almost always being uh, the only one. I grew up in South Texas at the border, the Texas-Mexico border. I grew up in a multi-generational household. I spoke English and Spanish at home. And those were things that I felt marked me in a way that, that I didn't fit in in medical school. And now I realize that those are the strengths uh, that make me who I am, make me um, able to understand the experiences of my patients and, and have given me the drive to, um, to succeed in, in medicine. So, so that's where I came, come from and um, I look forward to this discussion and I'm thrilled to see the number of people um, participating, knowing that most of you are Latina women. It just does my heart good. <laughs> yes, we are so excited to have everybody here together. Um, tell me more about your experience, that loneliness that you mentioned, um, you know, in, in the path um, to your current role. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, I think it, it has been with me my entire life. Um, before I could ever get to medical school, I had to convince my family that uh, being a physician was something that uh, was open uh, to women. And I heard growing up all my life, mijita, girls don't like science. Mijita, girls can't be doctors, you know, and, and they weren't trying to hold me back. They were trying to protect me. And I think it gets into that discussion um, that Dr. Anaya was talking about. Why are we seeing um, so few of our U.S. born uh, Latinas uh, enter the profession? I think we have some work to do within our own families, within our own cultures, um, to really show people that this is a path forward and a path forward um, for women. And then um, when I was in medical school, of course, most medical students were male. Um, there were 19 women in my medical school class. Wow. Uh, 10 of us graduated. And of course I was the only Latina. Um, and at some point um, the AAMC would keep track of, of um, professors in medical schools. I, you know, I decided to go to, into academic medicine and there was a time that the uh, AAMC kept track of the professors in medical schools and um, the number of Mexican American uh, full professors who were women, it, it numbered seven in the United States. I knew that I was one of them, but I had never met another one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is a lonely road when um, you find yourself always the only woman or the only Latina, the only one who can speak Spanish. But it is so important um, for our patients that we uh, persist. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and grateful for you having persisted um, and to all the Latina physicians in the audience and Latina physicians to be, um, you know, keep persisting. Um, so I'm curious, um, 
you know, as you, as a leader, right, um, what are some ways that you see that the Latina physician shortage is presenting challenges for health equity? You know, you've talked about some of them. Um, the Latino population is so important in the United States and being able to um, offer uh, culturally competent and as you've said, structurally competent care and knowing the questions to ask, understanding that, um, and, and I will say I started a clinic um, when I was in Salt Lake City, I was the only Spanish speaking a physician when I arrived in Salt Lake City. Um, I started a clinic for Latino immigrants and um, they were incredible. My patients were incredibly loyal. I took care of patients from prenatal till they went to college. You know, they were 21 years old and I was sending them off to college. Um, so I just think that um, having a physician that shares their life experience understands that their family may have mixed immigration status and what that does for seeking health care. Um, I'm a pediatrician. Sometimes I would have families where one child was born in the United States and had Medicaid and another older sibling was born in a different country and was uninsured. You know, that makes it very difficult uh, in a family. Um, understanding the dynamics that we see uh, culturally in families, the role of the father, whether or not um, uh, he's at the medical visit, the decision making that happens in the in the household, and the multi generational households, and how that impacts medical decision making, I think is really important. And then the very basic just interpretation, uh, being able to translate and accurately interpret of the symptoms and the complaints or the concerns that are being brought forward by our patients. I would uh, often come into the hospital or into my clinic and have to clear up misunderstandings, misinterpretation of the real reason why someone is, is seeking care and, and you know what really needed uh, to be done. So I think for all those reasons, we need diverse physicians to really match the populations that we care for um, in the United States. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, even thinking about when you mentioned the multi-generational homes, right? It brought me back to COVID and how, you know, how impactful that was for the spread of coronavirus within our um, multi-generational homes, right? People going out, working, bringing it back home. And, yeah, and so, and the importance of understanding that and bringing that understanding to the table and, um, you know, our ability to make the decisions based on having that understanding. And I, I'm noticing uh, folks are dropping questions into the chat. Please go ahead and uh, continue doing so. We'll be moderating it and um, I save some time at the end for questions as well. Um, you also alluded to kind of some of um, what you have seen as the barriers um, to the underrepresentation of Latinas and other URIMs in, um, in medicine. Which um, do you think are continuing uh, to, you know, at the at the root cause um, affect this underrepresentation? And then how do we tackle them? Uh, what what can we even do? I see a number of 
root causes. And in my time um, using whatever platform is available to me, I've tried to address those. And I will start with culture. Um, I think it's very important to meet with families who have promising um, children who um, may be able to enter into the health professions. And so when I um, do outreach, I tend to start, uh, well, I start telling the parents of my newborns they need to read with their children and they need to be successful in kindergarten and those kinds of things. But I, I tend to start doing outreach at about eighth grade. And I really make sure that any outreach we do involves the parents so that they can see um, what their, uh, especially daughter's future might look like and to answer their questions about, in a way that would give them confidence that their daughters will have a life that still allows them to be the daughters um, that they want in a Latino household. You know, and answering very basic questions about can you get married? Can you have children? How do you balance? Do you have children, doctora? I get that question all the time. And really, I spend a lot of time working to convince the dads because the dads make a lot of, of the decisions. And some of the things that I've been able to say to fathers is that I have always been able to have a job I have always been able to care for my family and care for my extended family. And that's what meaning being a doctor has done, has changed not just me and my, my family, my husband and my children, but my parents, my cousins. It has, it has been important for our entire extended family. Um, so culture, I think, is really important, and that's on us. That's, that's like talking to our families, talking to our friends and neighbors, that's on us. Then we have the systems that we have to get through. And so cost is so very important and so much of a barrier. Mm -hmm. There was just data published, um, I think in the last couple of weeks that the AAMC puts out showing that students who attend medical school a higher and higher proportion are coming from the very top income levels in the United States. And if you are middle class or working class, um, it seems impossible to think about paying for the training that's required. And so one of the things I, I really try to do is work to to find ways to compress that training. How do we reach out to someone in college, make sure we can get them scholarships. If they can graduate from college in three years, move them along. I keep advocating for having certain college classes count in medical school. Um, I took biochemistry as a senior in college and it made biochemistry my first year of medical school a piece of cake. Yeah. That was great, that helped me. But wouldn't it have been better if I could have tested out a biochemistry? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I did my medical school training in three and a half years because there were electives that I could do. There were things that I could do. So finding ways to compress that training, mm. helping people to know that they have a guaranteed residency, I think is really important. Paying off loans. So loan reduction programs. 
um, everything that we can do to make it as easy to see the path as possible and as easy to pay the path, pay for the path as possible, I think is really important. And there's more ideas. Once you're in, we've got to keep you in, you know, and, and, um, and making sure that you feel supported and welcomed, you know, in your, in your training programs, in your medical school classes, all of those things are so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So um, I founded a pipeline program within our department. So the residents go out into the high schools and one of the topics um, that is covered is uh, financing your education, right? Introducing them to not because they're going to know that they actually need to turn it in by the state, the FAFSA, right? But this, there is a FAFSA and putting the name out there, right? So that they know, oh yeah, there was one time we heard a presentation and this is important. I remember being told it was important. I remember being told I needed to do it. Um, You know, just putting things on folks' radar and increasing access to um, that information. And, you know, I'm I'm curious um, because there is, I feel so much that we can also do at the institutional levels um, once we have our medical students um, in, in medical school and and beyond to support because there is attrition that is seen for women um, across the board, um, but also probably what that we're seeing for Latina women as well, given the, you know, the the numbers that we're seeing for um, medical student graduates that are Latinas and And so I'm curious, um, what are your thoughts uh, for institutions um, at at the medical school level, at the residency level, and then beyond? Yeah, I think, you know, the pipeline programs that you talk about are so important. I will tell you, I had no one to turn to when I was applying for medical school. I had no idea what the process was. And I will admit here in public today, when I applied to medical school, our applications were paper and part of my application was written in pen and part of it was written in pencil. And I really didn't know any better, you know? And so understanding the MCAT, the FAFSA, you know, how you find opportunities to shadow, what is shadowing? Um, How can I be participating in an experience that might actually pay me a salary in the summer so that I don't have to work as a waitress or you know whatever it is to bring the money in. So I think the pipeline programs are so important. Once we have um, people in place, then I think we have to be, well, first of all, the interviews, we have to be very sensitive to implicit bias. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, a fan of holistic review and having pipeline programs that help students actually convey their lived experience in a way that the medical school admissions committee will be impressed with the work that they've done or or can translate that into into meaningful um, accomplishments for a medical school. Then once they're in, I think we have to ensure that there is a level of financial literacy that's going on so people understand if they're taking out loans how those uh, work so that they don't get as much, you know, they don't get stuck under just a a heavy burden of debt. We need to help them find scholarships. We need to be cognizant about um, childcare and parental leave. Do we have appropriate policies in our medical schools 
and residencies. Um, believe it or not, in the year 2016, I helped a medical student who was the first medical student to take parental leave, a, a woman medical student to take parental leave at the University of Utah. Wow. In 2016. And she had been told by, by one of the deans that she would be allowed to take three days off. Wow. And if she wanted to take more than three days off, she would have to repeat the year. And she came to see me and we had some work that we had to do, but making sure we have policies that don't cause someone to lose the time, you know, because Latinas are not going to be able to start over. We can't afford to add an extra year. You know, we have to make sure that we have equitable policies and processes in place and that people know who to go to and who will advocate for them um, during these, you know, during these times when you're trying to balance uh, personal and professional responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, how do you feel that you are able to do that, right? Like you're able to bring your lived experience to the table um, to, in this situation, help that student navigate um, what was probably a, um, a challenging situation to kind of, you know, challenge the leadership, right? And the policies that are at the institution. Um, how do you do that? And how, what advice would you give Latina physicians that are out in the community or at various institutions um, trying to drive change? So you can drive change at any level. You know, for, for me, I didn't start here as the executive vice president of, a, of the largest academic health system. I started as a very junior student, trainee, with no background, but what I have learned is in medicine, people want to do the right thing. They really do. And the people we work with are always advocating for their patients. So they understand advocacy, mm -hmm. but they sometimes just don't see mm -hmm. what's around them. Um, especially if they're male, especially if they come from the dominant white culture, all of this is so invisible. Mm -hmm. And so by making it visible and by saying, you know, for this young woman, I, I said, look, we're physicians. We know a three-day parental leave right. is inappropriate. It's inappropriate from a medical standpoint. It's inappropriate from a psychological standpoint. We would never do it for one of our patients. How can we justify, you know, and, and what, how can we be creative? And so one of the things that I've done for parental leave for both male, men and women is I believe if you're a medical student taking parental leave, you should have a parental leave elective, pediatric elective. You will, or OB elective, but you will never learn more about pediatrics right. yeah. than that first <laughs> month that you are taking care of an infant. <laughs> and I believe that that should count as elective experience. I, I'm a real believer in double duty. Like I took biochemistry as a senior in college. It should have counted for my first year of biochemistry 
in medical school. If I'm having a baby and learning about breastfeeding and taking care of a newborn, that should count as a pediatric elective and not uh, cause me to lose, uh, lose time in medical school. Yeah, we actually, we have something like that in our residency, I will be proud to say, um, so that the residents are able to do some elective time, um, and then they are able to actually uh, present an academic, uh, make an academic presentation to their colleagues um, yes. on, on something that they learned, and there is so much that is learned, as you said. You will never learn more, no. Yeah. <laughs> So we have a great question in, in the chat that is relevant. So I'm just gonna um, uh, ask it now. So in addition to pipeline programs, how do we make sure our four-year institutions and medical schools are held accountable for changing their practices and policies that support students in pre-med and medical school on their path as part of their systems? Well, you will never, um, you will never get to change if no one is evaluated on that change. Mm -hmm. So we have to hold people accountable. And in medical school, um, all medical schools have to be accredited. So the lever that we have there is through the accreditation process for medical school. It can really, it can really change the policies, processes, and procedures of a medical school mm -hmm. if your accreditation is based on achieving certain metrics. The same thing is true, I think, for our health systems, um, but you need to have uh, leadership that will say diversity, equity, inclusion is important. These areas are important. I will be measuring um, your evaluation, you know, your annual evaluation, your departmental evaluation, the evaluation of the college, by whether you're achieving you know, goals that, that we're setting in these areas. Um, since I arrived, um, we have a program that ties some compensation of our health professionals to meeting quality goals. And I said, well, diversity and equity and inclusion should be part of those quality goals. And so we've added those dimensions um, to our incentive program. You know, you, you have to use the levers um, that will result in change. And so accreditation, pay, evaluation, you need to build, um, build those in. Absolutely. And I would add, you know, at the at the medical school level, at the residency level, um, documenting, demonstrating ongoing growth and sustained growth, right? Um, not, we've been at the same number for how long, right? And so um, documenting that there is ongoing and sustained growth and representation. And, you know, at the very least, it should match the US's population uh, rates of, um, that we have of representation in our general population. Um, and so we, yeah, we can absolutely use that that data for um, accountability and really more so just to to um, demonstrate the areas for progress that um, that we have. 
One other, um, you know, mechanism that kind of comes to mind at the um, at the medical school level, um, and I noticed you you have a pin on your on your coat. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, academic medicine, um, I believe, really should make efforts to protect the ability of DACA and undocumented students and residents to continue to pursue and practice medicine in the U.S., supporting their efforts for their long-term integration. Um, and, you know, I think it's another source of, um, of untapped uh, workforce and uh, diversity for our institutions and um, and resilient uh, students as well. Well, I agree with you, and I I think we have to understand why DACA is so important. Um, many of us come from families where there is mixed uh, immigration status and where circumstances, you know, compelled uh, a family to cross. The border and and um, some children may have been you know incredibly young and they don't know any other country and they want to contribute and so I do support um, all of our DACA students. The butterfly has been the symbol at the University of California. This pin um, I try to wear it every time I speak in public and it also has special meaning for me because. Um, it was the last gift my my sister gave to me um, before she passed away as a gift for me to bring on my interview at the University of California to so that I would know she was with me. So I wear it a lot. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful and um, just kind of reminds me of the impact that our families have in our contributions and our inspiration um, you know, as we move forward. Um, thank you for, for, you know, having that be one of your values. Um, I know there's probably folks in the audience that, um, you know, this is resonating with. And I did, we talked earlier, um, as we were preparing, you know, why representation matters and why it matters in leadership. And it's because, um, when we are in leadership positions, we can change the narrative. We can um, push the institution in ways that they may not have considered. So that may be in policy and process, but I wanted to give the example of just this last year uh, when we had um, the humanitarian crisis of unaccompanied minors um, at our border, at the University of California, at California's border. And um, the AAMC, the CDC, the NIH, they called together the leaders of all the academic health systems in the United States. There are 155 of us. Most of them are male, like 90%, and 90% are white. And they asked us to help with this humanitarian crisis. And I do believe that many academic health centers sent volunteers, individual volunteers, to um, 15 sites across the United States. But the University of California Health System set up two sites. We used our entire weight of the system and we set up two sites that we staffed um, for five months and we took care of 5,000 children. And we were able to um, 
take care of them during COVID. We were able to make sure that there weren't outbreaks in the centers. We, we made sure we used all our pediatric expertise and so that it was a child-friendly environment, a child-safe environment with um, play and education as well as medical care. And I'm just so proud of that work that our system did. It was so aligned with the values of our system. There were over 1,000 uh, healthcare providers and staff who participated, and it was really transformational for them to participate in something like this. And I think to myself, why didn't any of the other 155 academic health systems do what we did? And I think it has something to do with the fact that the leader of this health system is a woman, a pediatrician, a mother who grew up at the border That's and who, who knows what it means to have a three-year-old alone at the border. Absolutely. And the way that you were able to bring your values to your to that leadership table. Um, you know, you're right there. Truly, there is. Um, I mean, I'm speechless. It, it really is the reason that we were able to have such an impact. And having been one of the providers, um, one of the physicians there, you know, can can really attest to even some of the, um, you know, the tears and the the pain that was um, the, the, the children were undergoing. And so to be able to be even myself and tell them, I was an immigrant. I also came here like you came and I'm here to tell you, look, I'm a doctor. I'm your doctor here today. And, you know, and, you know, trying to be a presence of um, inspiration, but even sometimes as a mother, right? Like being able to be a mother to them. Yes. Um, I to steer a little bit um, in this direction, I saw Dr. Rodriguez posted another uh, question um, about, you know, so, and I will say from my own experience, and I was really, actually really supported in my family to pursue education, higher education. And, you know, I was little and saying, I want to be a doctor. And my parents were like, yeah, like, go be a doctor. <laughs> but but, you know, now uh, feeling more of that loneliness now that I'm further ahead in my career and that there are fewer, you know, women um, that are leaders and that I can turn to for, for mentorship, for uh, sponsorship. Um, what can we do in our academic institutions to increase leadership positions for women of color? And how can we reduce isolation and build community? Right, they're two different questions. And so building community is so important and that we need to do ourselves. And so sometimes that community is not in your local environment and our national professional organizations are so important. They're important to get mentorship there when, when you're starting out, but they're also important so that you have someone to talk to who knows what you've been through. And so that national networking is, is so, so important. And the Latino Medical Student Association and all of their, um, their work is just um, incredible. And so I would say we have to build that community and we have to understand that that community may not always be with other physicians. Mm -hmm. It may be with the nursing staff that speaks Spanish and that 
brings you some tamales when they know you are so tired. Mm -hmm. Or it may be um, with the environmental services staff who encourages you to keep going or, and will say things to you like, you've given me hope for my children. You know, that we need to know um, how to build that community throughout the health system. And then the creation of um, new leadership opportunities. I have really spent time speaking with the medical leaders and health leaders uh, across our campuses. Our leadership, in my opinion, is too masculine and, um, and still to this day, um, pretty uniformly white. I think we're at about 85% white in our leadership mm -hmm. positions. And I've gone to them to say, you know, each one of your department chairs should have an associate chair. Mm -hmm. Each one of your division chiefs should have an associate division chief. We, we need to do it to be a good organization anyway for succession planning, mm -hmm. but how do you open so that you're bringing more people in who can learn the leadership skills that they need in case your department chair needs to retire or in case your division chief has an accident there's someone else who can you know step in i'm also a believer in term limits you know department chairs are a big stepping stone to further leadership i will tell you right now i was not a department chair I was not a division chief. That is not the path that that was open to women. I had to go in different ways. But department chairs in the United States, their tenure might be 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I think that the undergraduate campuses have it right and people should serve as a department chair for five years on average, 10 years, maybe max. But make room for others. Make yeah. room for others. Yeah, and that reminds me. You know, the um, there was a fantastic commentary that was written um, uh, uh, with our paper, and one of the um, methods that was suggested it was sponsorship programs, sponsorship programs at institutions, and just opportunities to really correct inequities um, in opportunity, right? And, um, you know, it seems that that would be a very natural way, you know, as you were saying, having an associate chair um, to, to really be able to um, open up um, for additional folks to bring um, to the table. And, to, for, and, you know, also, I think another part of it is, it's not only just about having the numbers, right? It's about having the people in the positions that they can actually contribute, having them be empowered and um, able to contribute their perspective and their um, and their experiences to uh, to those decisions that are being made. Absolutely, and and I would also say I've I've taught um, both leadership for women, but also. Um, um, faculty development for investigators. And one of the things that I had to do kind of growing up was I had to learn to become my own best mentor. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us who feel lonely that we don't have exactly, you know, the person that we need, we need to be that person. 
And we need to understand how do we get the lay of the land of our work environment? How do we figure out who's making decisions and how we maybe can talk to people and influence decisions? But also, how do we let our bosses know our aspirations? They cannot read your mind. And it can start as something small, like I was preparing my CV for a promotion and I realized that I didn't have um, regional talks, like I hadn't been invited to give it. So I was like, well, I better do something about this, you know, and I just went and started telling people, I'd love to give grand rounds at your hospital. I can give grand rounds on the febrile infant or pneumonia, or, you know, do you think there'd be a place for me? Mm-hmm. We have to learn to advocate for ourselves. And that's a tiny example, but being able to tell your division chief or your department chair, you know, I aspire to be a department chair myself one day, or I aspire to be a dean one day. I'd like to learn from you. I have found that when you approach people like that and say, I have a question for you, or I'd like to learn from you, people say yes. Mm-hmm. And so we, we need to not be afraid of asking and letting people know what our dreams are, what our aspirations are. You say that this is a small thing, but I think this is huge, Dr. Byington. Um, you know, being able to um, have the courage to advocate for ourselves, I think that's huge. Um, also, knowing sometimes, that you, you know, even for me, I didn't even know what academic medicine was, right? Before getting to residency, I don't think I was even like able to grasp what academic medicine was. No, um, and no, even, you know, how do we know what opportunities exist, what we can even aspire to, because so many of us grow up, grew up thinking, you know, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to give back to my community by being a doctor. But then, you know, when we get there, how do we actually do that? Um, And for me, that has been academics. Academics has been what has allowed me to really feel like I'm able to make an impact. I'm able to do research and, and apply it to policy so that we can really make change. And so you can be an inspiration for the next generation, because it's, if you're not in the academy, who's teaching our medical students? Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that our medical school faculty, our health professional faculty reflects our students and our students have diversified much more quickly than our, than our faculty has diversified. So we have a lot of work to do there. I was like you, I just said I wanted to be a doctor. And in my mind, what that looked like was my pediatrician in an office with a, my mother wanted to be my front desk receptionist. <laughs> and, and it was a mentor. I've had two mentors in my life and one of them, two professional mentors, one of them um, said to me, you wanna be a pediatrician because you wanna make a difference. And I said, yes, that's, That's correct. And he said, Carrie, the way you make a difference in children's lives is through research. Mm -hmm. I had never thought about research. I had never thought about a career in academic medicine. And it really changed my life and my focus. And I'm so grateful. 
I'm so grateful for that mentorship. Um, he put me, we were having a measles outbreak. I was a medical student. We were having a measles outbreak. As I said, I had finished six months early. And he said, Carrie, you can do one of two things. You can start your internship early in January. I'm pedi thank God I didn't do that. Or you um, can work with the Centers for Disease Control for six months and start um, your internship with the rest of your class in July. And so he gave me this opportunity. I got married December 7th. I, I finished med school on December 16th. I got married on December 17th. I had a tiny little honeymoon and on January 1st, I started working with the, um, with the Centers for Disease Control investigating a measles outbreak in Houston. And I was the one who could go speak Spanish in the, um, in the hospitals, but it completely changed my life. And I saw during that time, a thousand children with measles, a thousand. I saw six pregnant women die of measles. And our data that we sent to the Centers for Disease Control is what changed the policy in the United States from one measles vaccine to two. That's still the policy today. And I watched the measles outbreak end in my community. Yeah. And I thought it is research that changes lives and it's health policy that changes lives. And so it completely changed the trajectory of my career. And I am so grateful. Yeah. Wow. I um, hope that the, you know, aspiring physicians in the audience can hear that as well. Um, the power that research has certainly is something that I've learned here with Seslack and um, Dr. Hazel Vista. I cannot believe that the, our time is almost over and I want to be <laughs> mindful of everybody's time. I could be here chatting with you forever, Dr. Byington, but I know you are a busy lady. Um, and so, you know, just to, um, before we close, um, and I, I do see so many questions in the, in the chat that we weren't able to get to, um, but any kind of last words of advice that you would give institutional leaders with regards to increasing and sustaining the diversity of the physician and the physician leader workforce? We just have to consistently give the message, we cannot be excellent if we are not inclusive. And we all want to be excellent. So let's open the doors, let's break down the silos, break down the barriers, and let's become more excellent. Let's not have the conversation stop here. If these findings or really any of our other work resonates with you and you want to continue this conversation around next steps, the next phase, this is work that we are committed to and always open to explore collaboration. So please do reach out. That's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so already. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. Our writers are Brandy Lopez and Giselle Hernandez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into topics of Latino, culture, ente, and health.